Leadership Next is powered by the folks at Deloitte, who, like me, are exploring the changing rules of business leadership and how CEOs are navigating this change. Welcome to Leadership Next, the podcast about the changing rules of business leadership. I'm Alan Murray. And I'm Michal Evram. And today's guest is a woman who has been on our most powerful woman list for several years running, the CEO of UK-based pharma company, GSK, Emma Walmsley. That's right, Mahal. And she came to the Fortune office. I'm so sorry you weren't here for it. She was there in I person. I know. I felt very left out. Emma became <laughs> CEO of GSK in 2017. It was, it's frankly, was kind of a tough time for the company. It was a bit of a turnaround job. It didn't have the drug pipeline that many of its competitors have. And she's been on a path to manage that turnaround. Yeah. And we were really lucky to catch her just a few days after the company's RSV vaccine had been approved by the FDA. This is a really big deal. Um, obviously, RSV has been a, a, a hot topic for all the wrong reasons, um, but this is this is huge for them and for you know the, the industry. Um, so we were really anxious to ask her about that, and of course about leadership more broadly because you know she's shattered some ceilings and and she's um, gone through a lot of challenges at the company as you said. I thought that was fascinating. I'm I'm not going to give it away right here, but she had some really interesting things to say about how she developed her leadership style. It's not the standard stuff you, you heard from CEOs 10 years ago. So here she is, Emma Walmsley. Emma, thank you so much for joining us today. Great to be here. Thank you for having me. I, I want to start off with something uh, newsy, and that's this new approval for the RSV vaccine for adults 60 or older. What do you see as the potential? I mean, this hasn't been the, the biggest part of your business to date, um, the vaccine side, but what do you see as the potential here and how meaningful it, is it to get this approval? Well, you know, it's it's extremely meaningful in the sense that the world has woken up to the power and importance of adult vaccination. Uh, I think, you know, we're all in a very different place now than we were mm -hmm. three years ago. Um, and, you know, if you just step back, um, actually, we were one of the pioneers in adult vaccination with our shingles vaccine, Shingrix, uh, which we launched in 2017. That's a horrible disease that impacts, you know, one in three of us. And we have over 90% efficacy to protect for that. RSV is a disease that many uh, hadn't heard of uh, not that long ago and perhaps might associate with infants because it's um, quite common in very uh, young children. But in fact, the much bigger burden of diseases in older adults. You have over 175,000 hospitalizations every year in the US um, and you know, a really quite meaningful uh, death rate uh, as well. It's very exciting that GSK has the first approval in history of an RSV vaccine. We do see it um, you know, not only as having meaningful impact on health, for those that represent 94% of hospitalizations, i.e. those that are really at risk here, we have coincidentally 94% efficacy. So that's you know, a really uh, impressive protection rate. You can also, we know we have studies that show you can have it administered with a flu vaccine at the same time and both still maintain 
uh, uh, their efficacy. And we're going to be very excited to see as the data matures, um, you know, how long that protection lasts. Is it an annual vaccine or can we go for two or maybe even three years to keep people protected? So this is not just in human impact uh, and, you know, there are over a billion over 60s in the world, but also we see it as a multi-billion uh, opportunity. And that adds to the more than 20 vaccines we actually do have in our portfolio. And we're very invested um, uh, in future innovation in adult vaccination as well. And I'm glad you're doing stuff for the over 60s. We, we, <laughs> well, we, we really, we really uh, appreciate that. Look, uh, um, uh, it's interesting the way you talk about it, that we've been awakened to the power of vaccines. We had uh, Albert Borla from Pfizer on the show, and we had Stefan Bansell from Moderna. Both of them talked about how the pandemic experience really enlivened their staffs. And you were part of that, but didn't get to the finish line. Well, listen, um, it was an extraordinary experience for CEOs in every industry to lead through uh, the pandemic. When you add to that our responsibility to mobilize and contribute, um, you know, is definitely something that the the whole company put full heart uh, and hands and resources into. In fact, we did uh, contribute very meaningfully in terms of treatments for COVID. Mm -hmm. um, uh, we did, I think, uh, cumulatively more than three billion in sales for uh, Zavudi, which yeah. is a, um, uh, a biologic for those who weren't able to be protected or for whom protection didn't work uh, durably. And you know, we really. Uh, took great pride in our mobilization around that. In terms of vaccines, we do actually have approved vaccines uh, now um, in our partnership with Sanofi. And it was, um, uh, you know, I'll ha happily say it, it was uh, a bit denting at the time not to be first out uh, the gate. And we were disappointed um, when that trial got uh, delayed. Um, but in the end, I personally could not be more delighted that the whole industry showed up um, in partnership at such pace, in partnership not only with our competitors, but also with governments, with regulators. Uh, and, you know, we're now moving, I think it's even today that the uh, sort of, um, you know, the, the pandemic uh, as a national emergency is declared um, to be transitioning. And we see plenty of both opportunity and responsibility uh, to innovate in an endemic market, we'll be living with COVID as we as we do with 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 flu. And I think mRNA is an exciting technology. We're very uh, invested in our partnership with CureVac and intend to invest more. So, culturally, I think you know healthcare has never mattered more in the world than we've had this bright light shone on it. Um, whether it's to individuals, families, companies, countries, the link between a healthy society and a productive society has never been clearer. You and I were part of a conversation uh, uh, recently about these incredible new uh, data tools. How is that going to change your business? Well, I think it's a really profoundly important question for every leader to be asking at the moment. And I actually think it's going to change everything. Uh, I am a technology optimist. Um, you know, at GSK, we say the purpose of the company is to combine science, technology, and talent to get ahead of disease together. So, and every word there counts. And when we talk about tech, that's platform tech, the kind of things I was just talking about in vaccines, or it might be also in medicines and manufacturing, but it's also data tech. Mm -hmm. And 
when you overlay that with all the advances we see now in the world in understanding of genetics and genomics and this vast explosion of data, um, there is a real opportunity for um, next-gen technologies to improve the biggest challenge of our sector, which is the productivity of R&D. It can take a decade, cost billions of dollars, and on average has a 90% failure rate mm. <laughs> to you know, discover, develop, and invent new medicines and vaccines. It's the most profound challenge of our industry and also of society. And you know, when we talk about the burden of healthcare costs, the single best thing we can do is innovate more. Think of all those diseases that don't have solutions, or we're seeing the excitement we're all getting when we're seeing emerging solutions, like with Alzheimer's, neurodegeneration. You know, there are so many spaces where we still don't have solutions in oncology as well, in other infectious diseases. So I think that you know, the foundational first part of how generative AI is going to contribute to every company is in the productivity and the efficiency and the reshaping of roles you know, across the whole value chain. What really excites me is when these technologies are going to drive innovation and faster solutions. And then when you think, you know, we all think about what's happening inside our company. If you are a, you know, a focused biopharma company, what's also exciting is how is it going to change the full service of healthcare? How is it going to change and we know that's happening, the way doctors work, the way uh, they spend more time caring and less time uh, on admin. How is it already informing you know, remote care? How is it going to inform between data and robotics how um, uh, you know, surgeries are performed? How are we going to be looking at the visualization and earlier intervention and anticipation of diagnoses of disease? How is it going to drive access and equity? I mean, there are so many ways in which human ingenuity can be, I, I hope and believe, combined with these opportunities of this technology is to help us get better at solving one thing we all care about, which is our health and wellness. How long have you been in this job now? Uh, six and a bit years. Six and a bit years. And, and, uh, and pharmaceutical companies can be slow moving for all the reasons you've already highlighted, you know, developing new products. So you took over a company that had some challenges. Yeah. And on top of that, you had an activist, Elliott Management, get into your stock and, and push for some major changes. You spun out your consumer business. I wonder what that's been like for you to, to, to deal with activists from the inside. You know, and it won't surprise you um, at all to have me say that I'm not going to comment on an individual shareholder. What I stay really focused on is keeping the organization focused on what we're here for and not distracted. And I think that is the job of the CEO in these circumstances is to stand in front of it, to absorb it, to engage um, uh, and to you know really stay focused on the priorities we laid out. And you, you rightly said I was brought in to lead an aggressive change agenda for GSK. And you know um, the diversity wasn't necessarily the visible one, <laughs> as uh, as you've alluded to, Mahal. You know I came as an insider outsider from building up the consumer business. We uh, sought to fundamentally change you know most things the group structure so we built up the consumer business with a series of deals with Novartis first then with Pfizer then with a demerger and frankly did one of the biggest demergers in history the first pure play uh, uh, consumer 
um, uh, healthcare company with Halion, really pleased with that. But the the, the most exciting thing in some ways strategically for that is the strategic unlock of the balance sheet it gave to GSK to re reinvest again in innovation. You know, we increased our R&D spend by 30 uh, percent during uh, that time. We were able to take out um, a dividend from the demerger to strengthen our capacity to invest in future growth. And we now started last year on this new five-year chapter, sort of 21 to 26, of meaningfully competitive, profitable growth again, led through innovation, um, very much focused on vaccines, preventions of disease, but also specialty medicines, pioneering in innovation in HIV. I mean, you know, that's an, uh, you still got 1.2 million people in the world being infected uh, with HIV, 38,000 in the US alone. Um, and there's a lot of innovation we've led the way through in that. Two thirds of our pipeline is in infectious diseases more broadly, mm. continuing in other specialty medicines emerging uh, in oncology. We've got the, you know, a lot of confidence in that five-year outlook. We've started it extremely well. Then the question will be, how do the next five-year chapters, because we work on these long horizons uh, in our sector. And, you know, I'm really excited with the progress we've made. We've got a lot more to do. And you have some, as you said, you have some ammunition for acquisition. Well, you can you can share your plans with us here if you'd like. To. <laughs> well, we've just <laughs> we've just announced some uh, some recent deals which we're uh, uh, delighted uh, with. You know. Building on our vaccines portfolio with the uh, acquisition of Afinovax in pneumococcal disease. We also, you know, bought Sierra Oncology. Very much looking forward to seeing um, how, uh, you know, hopefully getting the approval for that in coming weeks in myelofibrosis. And just a couple of weeks ago, we announced um, the acquisition of Bellus, which is in uh, chronic cough, an absolutely hideous um, uh, illness where, I mean, you've got people who, I think it's 28 million people who are living with chronic cough that can be like 900 times a day with horrible quality of life implication, mm -hmm. mainly women, by the way, of, of that. And we think we may have a differentiated medicine there. So, you know, we, we stated the intent in this change agenda for GSK to put innovation back as our number one priority and doing what we're here to do, which is deliver uh, for patients. We're making good progress. There's always more to do. That will be organic and or inorganic. And, um, you know, that's that's what we're focused on. I have one other question, just real quick, going back to, to this not so fun topic, but without naming any names, because recognize that you can't comment specifically, but uh, somebody out there who was agitating um, at some point uh, suggested that you reapply for your job. And I'm wondering, as a leader of a very important company and someone who's had a, a, a long and impressive career, like what is that, what's the thought process when you receive a, a request like that? Well, look, um, first of all, you shouldn't take on these jobs if you're not, you know, they're an enormous privilege uh, and they are a serious responsibility and you cannot take them on if you don't have both the courage of your convictions, the ability to listen and sufficiently thick skin uh, to, you know, uh, weather some media provocation or otherwise uh, whenever it whenever it comes. Um, uh, I think in the end, uh, what matters in this situation is uh, also you know, open uh, dialogue, the support, uh, which I've had wholeheartedly uh, from our board and just staying focused on my job and, and what I'm here to do. And um, that's exactly what we've been doing. And you just have to, you know, not worry about it too much.
Um, okay, we're gonna we're gonna get to the, the the leadership questions here, and you know we already kind of alluded to this, but you are the only woman CEO of a major pharmaceutical company, and um, have to 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 wonder as somebody who's worked across our most powerful women list uh, events, you know, the kind of the whole universe for for a while now. Um, I'm just always curious. I mean, is that a distinction that? is important to you? Do you think about it at all? Do you feel a sense of responsibility there? You know, I don't know how it is for you, Mahal. I, I personally, I, I have always tried not to define my career by my gender first. Um, but that doesn't mean I'm not extremely thoughtful and have a tremendous sense of responsibility as well um, to highlight what's possible. You know, you have to be conscious of your uh, responsibilities, if you like, as a, as a role model, but also to highlight what needs to change. And um, we are a long way, a long, long way from being anywhere close to the kind of representation in leadership, whether that's of companies or governments or institutions, that better represents the societies that we serve. And uh, I don't think we should ever uh, slow down or relax about our responsibilities to make those changes. And I'm really proud of how focused we are at GSK on our DE&I agenda, in part on representation, by the way. Um, we have 50% uh, um, of our managers in the company are women, and 42% of our VPs and above are women. Half of my wow. direct reports are women. The head of our US business, our China business, our Viv CEO, so these are P&L big earning jobs, are women. Our CFO and our CEO women and uh so this has been a priority for you well i my priority is to get ahead of disease and serve patients shareholders and us to have thriving people i have always believed and never more than as a ceo that we are completely dependent on the quality engagement alignment and glorious diversity of our teams. And, you know, I violently reject the notion of CEOs of, as superheroes. I think by definition in leadership, it is about helping others collectively and individually to do more together than we can ever do uh, uh, individually. And I think it's a preposterous notion that we should restrict our... Um, universe of selection of talent to one segment of society that all looks the same. So, you know, it's not the core of my purpose, as I said, but I just wanted to do the best I can for GSK. And the science shows, by the way, that diverse teams do better. The confrontation of ideas does better. The, By the way, the arguing in person sometimes make things, uh, you know, uh, gets to a better truth. So I, I, I do believe in this. And I, you know, I'm of a generation that has definitely lived through some pretty horrible experiences along the journey. And I really hope for my daughter and for my sons that um, we live in a more equitable society. But it's not just representation. We're very committed at GSK, for example, 
to broader representation in our clinical trials. You know, that's right at the core of what we do. We now have 100% of our clinical trials that have um, full uh, sort of demographic and better representation diversity. For example, one of the biggest drugs we're working on now is for hepatitis B. 300 million people in the world, okay? 300 million are living with hep B. Mm -hmm. You've got nearly a million deaths a year from hep B related causes. It's the main cause of liver cancer huge proportion of the patients are of Asian descent. And that's why we have more mm -hmm. than half the people in our trials, um, uh, you know, representing the patients we serve. But there are, the same would be true in the way we look with a different demographic at our HIV trials. So I think everything we do should be more inclusive of, of the world we serve. You're, you're speaking here very passionately about leadership, and we're learning something about your leadership style in the process. But can you talk about where that where that came from? I, who taught you leadership? Where did where did your instincts in in leading a big company like GSK come from? Well, I love it when you actually when you actually think about your our questions because it means you're going to answer them. You know, sometimes we have people on this show who uh, are here to say what they want to say <laughs> without thinking too much about what we're asking. <laughs> you didn't tell me anything you were going to answer. So, uh, ask. so um, it's the best kind of interview. Yeah, um, I so. You know how sometimes people say to you, who is your mentor or who is yeah, it? And, yeah. and there is no one answer. I've been incredibly blessed in my work. I think actually the most profound influence on me, and you will see with many people if they really tell the truth on this, it's often the answer. I think it was my dad. Um, uh, my father died last year. Um, and and uh, he was a serving officer in the Navy uh, for almost... Uh, Vice Admiral, right? Yeah, well, yeah. Uh, but <laughs> so anyway, and yeah, anyway, he was a submariner, so um, not an, uh, an easy uh, mm. life away at sea. Um, but he was profoundly committed to a sense of service and duty and hard work, actually. Mm. Um, and I think that was a, a really big influence on me always. Ironically, I have no, almost no business background uh, uh, mm. in my... Did you ever think you would be a CEO? <laughs> absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, absolutely not. But, you know, I mean, my mum was a stay-at-home mum. My dad was in the forces. My grandparents were doctors, actually, um, or uh, on the other side, a farmer. So we're literally, this is like the opposite of a business uh, background. But I've always been extremely curious, hungry to learn, explore the world, um, and and been lucky enough to do work that was very inspiring for me. Uh, I never had a particular career plan. I mean, I look at the next generation, my own kids, I'm just blown away by how many kind of I don't know, internships and stuff they're doing. My entire work experience was waitressing till I left college. Mm -hmm. um, and mm -hmm. then I just went for the job that would pay me the most, you know, at the beginning to pay off my debt. And then I went into L'Oreal and was lucky enough to uh, be sponsored, and I will always be profoundly grateful for that, um, to work with them all over the world in London, Paris, New York, five years, and, and then Shanghai. And, um, and, you know, through all of that experience, you learn from the leaders and managers who inspire you to give more, to do more, to be braver. And you also learn from a couple of experiences where you go, I'm never going to be like that. 
and uh well without without naming names no i won't no but 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 <laughs> Stylistically, are there things you saw in leadership that were common practices that you said, I'm not doing that? The things, the moments that are always inspiring are when you see leaders listening deeply, mm-hmm. asking questions mm-hmm. rather than pontificating or setting the direction or particularly telling you how to do something. I, I, I have, um, likewise, I think it's incredibly helpful when you set really clear and explicit objectives together and sign up for there and then you know are able to manage to those as opposed to micromanaging it. I think that the best examples are when leaders tell you why, not what. Um, and and you know I, I I feel really lucky to have lived all over the world because you just get exposed to different cultures and 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 it's very humbling actually. and I I, I think that the, the the more you realize what you don't know, the more curious you become. You know, we've got two ears and one mouth for a reason. And uh, I, I get very passionate about the work I do, but I'm always most inspired when I get a chance to reconnect and visit to the people who are doing it. And um, I was very l- lucky early in my career to have exposure to some brilliant brains and, and leadership. And, uh, yeah, I, I feel really grateful for that. I feel like, Alan, I have to say, uh, doing this podcast, I not only get so much amazing advice for the workplace, but also parenting advice. There are a lot of takeaways. <laughs> communication. Um, but um, I don't know. Um, if you ask my kids, I think it would be. <laughs> Um, okay, so I told you we weren't going to ask about the coronation, and I, and I won't. But I, but I do want to know. I introduced you as Emma. I should have said Dame Emma. Oh, no, right? Emma is definitely better. <laughs> what, is, what does it mean? So you were appointed Dame Commander of the British Empire for services to the pharmaceutical industry and business. Just tell us what that means. Well, uh, first of all, I definitely prefer to be called Emma, but it is part of a, <laughs> it's part of a recognition system uh, in the UK which has a lot of history um, and an enormous amount of protocol and governance uh, around how contributions to British society or on behalf of British society beyond the UK are uh, recognised. It's, you know, uh, and it involves um, a degree of ceremony. Um, and uh, I've- You get a hat. You get a lot of hats and <laughs> ribbons, and but but listen, I don't want to make make light of it. And it's an honor. It's a it's a big honor. I suspect yeah. your father, the vice admiral, was extraordinarily proud at that moment. It's lovely of you to say that, and I think you know the real thing is when people say what inspires you. I think most daughters are spending their lives trying to make their dad proud. So I wish that was true of my daughters. Oh, it is. <laughs> oh, it is. Sure it is. <laughs> you are. You, if you think, I bet you it is. Emma Wamsley, what a great conversation! Thank you so much for being here and for for actually answering our questions and questions <laughs> and, and thinking about them. Yeah. Well, I'm sure really somebody will want to edit me afterwards. But <laughs> <laughs> it's been great, Mahal. I loved. Uh, seeing you remotely. I hope we get a chance to meet in real life. Likewise. Likewise. Thank you so much. Leadership Next is edited and produced by Alexis Hott. Our theme is by Jason Snell. Our executive producer is Megan Arnold. Leadership Next is a product of Fortune Media. For even more Fortune content, use the promo code LN. 
25. That'll get you 25% off our annual subscription at fortune.com forward slash subscribe. Leadership Next episodes are produced by Fortune's editorial team. The views and opinions expressed by podcast speakers and guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Deloitte or its personnel, nor does Deloitte advocate or endorse any individuals or entities featured on the episodes. 